Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Sending your kids off for the day to nursery or school can often mean packed lunches need preparing and finding the time to put together a nutritious meal can sometimes be tricky. So from a name that you can trust, make sure to try the little Yo pouches from Yo Valley. Not only are these 90 gram pouches a perfect lunchbox size, but they're easy to eat and recyclable. A good source of protein and calcium, these little yo pouches are perfect fuel for busy days and packed full of live cultures that will help support healthy and happy tummies. Available in two delicious flavors which come in the recyclable pouches, these little yo yogurts are perfect for snacking on the go. To find out more, head to yovalley.co.uk and find it in your local supermarkets. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought, a podcast that's on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Anyone will tell you that hunger is just one of so many reasons that we eat, and those with a tendency of emotional eating are especially vulnerable to making poor dietary choices. If you are an emotional eater, you may find yourself eating to deal with uncomfortable emotions, using food as a reward perhaps when you're happy and craving sweets or unhealthy snacks when we're stressed. And please do not worry if this is you because you are not alone. This week's Food for Thought sees psychiatrist Dr. Chichi Oboya and I unearth how we can gain back control of eating and understand how to stop the vicious cycle of guilt, shame and restriction. Hello, Chi-Chi. Hello, Rhiannon. Good to uh, speak to you again. It's been a while. It has. But do you know, I remember we were on a panel event before and you've always stuck with me because you were such a great speaker and I thought of you instantly when this topic came up. So thank you for your valuable time. No problem at all. It's very kind of you. Let's start by addressing the real first step, I guess, in addressing emotional eating. What would you suggest to everybody listening? What can they do? I think it's really interesting time to be talking about emotional eating. Um, it's been uh, it's been an interesting six months since we we tried to first set this up, and maybe it's been good timing uh, that we are speaking now because. Twenty twenty has been a really tough year for a lot of people, and I think emotional eating is one of the things that people can identify with. Um, maybe if we'd we'd spoken earlier, it might have been a topic that didn't really resonate with everyone. Mm. Um, but people are feeling challenged. Stress is a major issue that is wearing many different faces, and so emotional eating is one of the responses. Um, that people are uh, exhibiting uh, alongside poor sleep, uh, increased alcohol intake, uh, lots of ruminative thinking. So I think it's a really important uh, topic to address and just to to think about how it affects people and some of the the strategies people can adopt uh, not to fall into uh, the common traps. Yeah, no, completely. I think you're right. I think... um... I mean, at 2020, it's going to be a year I don't think anyone will forget. It's impacted so many people, as you said, on multiple levels from um, 
the, the emotional food side to relationships to workplace environments everything but you mentioned something that um struck a chord with me then and that was stress do, do you think that's one of the biggest causes of emotional eating maybe before the pandemic and now I do, but I think it's important to unpack that a little bit because stress yeah. is one of those terms that use, is used very widely and uh, means different things to different people. Um, we can think about stress uh, as both a short-term and long-term phenomenon. Um, so things may happen on a given day that cause us to feel anxious, frustrated, disappointed, but stress broadly defined is uh, also thinking about adversity that people may have experienced, for example, during their childhood or adolescence. Um, so that's one uh, dimension. The other dimension is that when we talk about the link between then the stress and the emotional eating, that might be something that is very conscious. So an example would be, I've had a rubbish day, I deserve to, to treat myself to some chocolates versus an unconscious process. So if someone has maybe had really significant childhood adversity, um, they may, for example, have concerns about their body image and the emotional eating um, is a response to feeling a sense of shame about their body image, but the person may not fully understand that link. Um, so it can run along different dimensions and I think the, the lockdown uh, period during the pandemic um, has also brought some other characteristics out. Mm. So we know that everyone's baseline stress levels have gone up, uh, but there are some other factors. We're confined to our homes a lot more uh, than we ordinarily would. Uh, some people are working from home, so they're pretty much spending most of their working hours um, at home. And uh, the elephant in the room is that uh, we're in closer proximity to our fridges hmm. and therefore there's a real need to acknowledge that um, the ingredients for emotional eating uh, are there probably more so than they ever have been. I like how you describe that, the ingredients, um, almost um, good pun there, I guess, uh, play on words. But on a serious note, of course, I mean, I've been feeling it, cabin fever. It feels like um, we just don't go anymore any go anywhere anymore and you're right the fridge there was a study that I remember looking at at university which dictated that if you could see food actively you're more likely to go and eat it than if even the cupboard doors were shut in the kitchen and when they were left open it was so fascinating I guess that applies here doesn't it with it it being in the environment you're not used to yeah um, that's a great observation um one of the books that uh, I think is quite impactful uh, as a recommendation when we're thinking about getting into healthy habits and healthy eating um, is a habit I'm sure a lot of people aspire towards is a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And uh, he stresses the importance of making the development and sustenance of those goals um, easy and achievable and attractive. So on the one hand, if we're trying to adopt healthy eating habits, those are some of the characteristics. If we're trying to lose um, some less desirable habits, you need to do the opposite. So you need to make it unattractive uh, and, and very difficult to do. So I think some of those principles could be applied to what we're doing around our food. Mm -hmm. So if there's a tendency to engage in unhealthy eating, what are the measures that we could take as individuals to make it that bit harder? So a good example would be if actually accessing the food becomes harder, you've got to make more of an effort to get hold of it. Um, if you put it in, uh, dare I say, an ugly looking tin, it's less desirable than something that is beautifully laid out. Let's say um, having your fruit in a, in a, in a beautiful uh, fruit bowl mm. that makes it more attractive um, and therefore when when we have that um, sort of instinct kicking in and we're not really thinking what we're doing we want to be in a position where the things that we're reaching for are more attractive more desirable uh, and it's harder for us to get at those things that we're trying to avoid that's fascinating it's 
an angle that I don't think I'd actually um obviously it's not my line of line of work and you're a psychiatrist it's obviously what you do for for a living but you must speak to so many people that are really struggling to navigate this time I guess because there's almost a message on online in social media realms that states don't feel guilty you know eat what you want it's fine you know that kind of um response but if it's not making people happy um eating emotionally then it's not okay is it i think we have to embrace those um tools that you just said as in let's try and make things less desirable sometimes because that's equally okay i think people sometimes feel shame and they feel a lot of guilt for their behaviors and i mean how how would you recommend someone minimize the type of stress then involved with emotional eating so one thing they can do is help with the environment is there a way they can try and get the stress down well i think one of the important points to to make first is that there isn't one narrative that's going to be relevant for everybody mm. um there's a danger that we tend to focus on on overeating um there are big public health campaigns around obesity uh, there's a big government push to think about things like food labels that can sometimes be counterintuitive because it makes people feel bad about what they're doing and as you said sometimes um, it's good that people can treat themselves and we, we need a bit of balance. Mm. Um, but also it's important to recognize that there are a group of people that under eat uh, and those messages can be uh, quite hard for them to make sense of because it's going against uh, some of the work that they're doing um, to, to manage their relationship with food better. Yeah. So it's I think the public health whilst, dilemma, right? Um, how to get one message for all. So I've talked about difficult relationships with food in the context of the pandemic, but I think it is important to stress that um, the eating is sometimes the symptom uh, and it's not the underlying issue. So if we're saying that people are under increasing levels of stress, it's important to fully understand, number one, what's driving the stress. Uh, and sometimes that's just a sense that people feel that things are out of, are out of their control or they underestimate their ability to, to overcome challenges. And that in itself is not helped by the fact that we're, we are being forced to isolate ourselves from our natural support networks. Yeah. So we can go from just looking at overeating, uh, and actually that's the tip of the iceberg, but the real problem might be in social connections so what are the things that people can do to maintain uh, a sense of connection with friends and family for example mm. i think with our relationships with loved ones i mean it's totally affected at the moment when you mentioned the iceberg then i could see an image that i remember reading somewhere where you can see the water and you can see the tip of the iceberg emerging from the water and underneath the water you can see all those tiers of things like your friends your workplace the stress all the things that create um that iceberg essentially which which is a really good um diagram for anybody that wants to kind of do it at home themselves and think what's actually going on in their lives at that moment because i think relationships perhaps are one of the biggest drives aren't they to developing emotional eating sometimes they can be um i'd say top of the list would probably be relationships with family members mm. and again contextualizing that so thinking about the whole range of disordered eating that can be a trigger uh, because of historical factors uh, going back many many years um, and things which um, have happened in the past or sensitive uh, words that have been uttered and remembered and so for people who maybe have moved out of home uh, but have been forced to go back and live with their parents at this time, uh, that can be really difficult for them. Uh, Mealtimes can be tricky for a lot of people. And therefore, if one is used to eating a meal in isolation uh, and having a sense of control, it can be quite hard if you're then forced to sit with the family 
at a set time, which isn't the time of your choosing. Uh, and you're, you're eating in front of people, which again is, is difficult for some. Um, and there's just more scope for people to be commenting on how long it takes you to eat a meal or why you didn't eat certain foods. And one of the things uh, that's very well established in the psychiatric literature is a concept of high expressed emotion. Uh, and that covers a number of themes, including the perception of over-involvement by one's loved ones, uh, critical comments, um, and, and generally what we would refer to as micromanagement. And those can have a negative long-term impact on somebody's ability to overcome uh, certain eating disorders like anorexia nervosa. It's also implicated in a, a number of different mental health conditions. Uh, and so I think we shouldn't underestimate the impact of uh, challenging family dynamics on uh, an area that may already be quite uh, tricky for people to navigate. Yeah, no, completely. Um, you've, you've explained that perfectly, actually. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will be very grateful for the fact that you've brought that up. I think moving back with parents, if we, if we pick on that as one area just to, to go into a little bit, obviously I'm, I'm now a new mum and I'm very congratulations. aware. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I hear that you also have congratulations to be in order as well. So we're both navigating this Thanks. parenthood realm and it's hard, isn't it? And I think I'm sure you must feel the same, Titi, in that you'll know to be very conscious not to comment on shape or appearance and weight and try and create positive language. But it's not really something people are told to do is it so it's no wonder that different generations have created issues around food really no uh, and i think sometimes we we just have to hold our hands up and and realize that we haven't said the right things and that there's opportunity uh, for better learning i think for people who uh, are struggling with their food um we have to be realistic about the, the circumstances at the moment. Um, there may not be the easy option of um, isolating oneself and, and family members are there, but there are some things people can do. Uh, and I would encourage them to think about whether there's anyone outside of their family, if they're finding that family members are triggering somebody outside their family that they can be accountable towards. Uh, and if necessary, there are, uh, a range of uh, eating disorder charities uh, like BEAT uh, and Overeaters Anonymous that can provide uh, some counselling, um, signposting to a range of resources and other forms of help. Um, so I'd really just emphasise that people shouldn't feel as though there are no options. There are some things uh, that they can uh, get some help with but also some things they can get a sense of control over, um, like planning their meals uh, and maybe keeping a food diary that might sit alongside a mood diary. And what can happen at that stage then is that it's possible to generate some data that's going to outline what sort of patterns there are and what are the things that actually trigger people to become um, or to get into difficulty with their food, rather. Yeah, I mean, uh, keeping a food and mood diary, I think, is is pretty a pretty good tip for people that maybe don't have access right now to support, because I'm sure that the services are completely stretched, and I'm sure you're extremely busy at the moment. I know we've we've been so busy from a nutritional perspective in the nutrition clinic at the moment. And that's something that people can do at home, isn't it, to identify any patterns what what should they do though if they start keeping a diary at home and they're noticing that they're really not feeling their best and there's something that's a red flag there is there any online resource they can turn to um for anybody listening right now that you'd recommend i think before we even get to online resources uh let's think about what the the value of of planning these things and of mm. tracking uh, one's food would be what we're really talking about is that ability to understand what the main triggers are um, because 
like a lot of things in in my world, um, just developing insight into what's really driving the difficulty is uh, the starting point. Uh, there's an acronym I can share with you uh, for some of the potential triggers. So we've talked about the fact that uh, we're close to our fridges. But what are the things that drive people to, for example, comfort eat? So the acronym is BLAST, and the B stands for being bored. And I'm sure that's something we can all identify with. Mm. Um, at the moment, there are just times where we don't have access to the range of uh, leisure activities, uh, being able to go where we would like, and sometimes our eating habits are just driven by pure boredom. Remember that each of these things could lead to what we might view as a negative response, but the, the idea is that you, you need to generate an alternative solution. The L stands for being lonely. Isolation, we know, can have a huge impact on people's mental health. And um, it's a big challenge at the moment. So particularly people who might live alone, uh, people who might live alone and are working from home, that's really tough because they're just not getting the level of social engagement that they would like. Mm. The A stands for being angry. Um, and I think there's plenty of anger uh, going around in society for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and we've talked about stress, so the S is for stress. Uh, another important one, T, for being tired. Mm. Um, so that's not an exhaustive list, but it just outlines a few pointers for the sorts of things that might be driving this sort of behaviour, but it gives the opportunity for a different response as well. No, thank you. That That's extremely, extremely helpful. Do you find, I'm sure a lot of people would want to know, that there are certain trigger foods that people um, that people tend to reach for? And do you think that they're the sorts of foods that people should be maybe limiting in the house? Obviously, it's very difficult on an episode like this because everybody's going to have a different relationship with food, a different case. And as you said, people undereat, they overeat they don't think about food enough or they think about food too much. But in mm. general, are there certain food groups that you find perhaps cause more problems than others? Certainly in my clinical experience, uh, we are talking predominantly about sugary foods. Um, and the reason I say that is that um, those are the sorts of foods that are gonna get your blood sugar up. Uh, so if you are feeling really hungry, these are the foods that will um, give you um, a bit of a rush uh, and satisfy your hunger quicker than, than anything else. Mm. Um, we also need to think alongside that about the dopamine pathway. So that's the reward system in the brain. Um, I want to emphasize I'm not here to, to be a killjoy. Um, but if you take um, your, your favorite um, snack, for example, you probably feel good. So it might be um, having some nice chocolates. It does feel good. And there's that sense of anticipation. So the dopamine pathway uh, is in action at that stage. Uh, and the danger becomes if you have the opportunity to go back and then go back again and go back again, that can become a habit. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying um, a particular type of food but it's about having things uh, in reasonable proportions. Yeah, you mentioned habit rather than addiction. And I think that's something that can be very confusing for people to differentiate between because you hear the phrase a lot being thrown around, I'm addicted to sugar, therefore I must cut it out completely. But the response that I would obviously say is, you know, if you have it in moderation, you're less likely to probably want to overeat on it. But do you hear that a lot in your line of work, the, um, the confusion between sugar, perhaps, and addiction? I think so. And um, we're trying to cover a whole range of um, individuals and behaviours. Mm -hmm. So again, stressing, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and that we're talking about a spectrum of relationships with food. So... Um, I think the key thing is for people to understand uh, where they are 
uh, some people will be more driven by uh, data. So the whole concept of a food diary is the sort of thing they'd be interested in doing. Whereas for others, they want to do things just a little bit more intuitively. And that just sounds mm -hmm. like um, a really boring exercise to actually spend time writing down what you're eating. So I think it's just about having a broad sense of uh, where you are, being adequately educated, and then deciding what you're going to do with that information rather than trying to dictate exactly what people should do. So in relation to types of food, I want to keep things quite simple. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm a psychiatrist. But I think the concept of um, having a balanced diet uh, and not becoming too preoccupied with uh, eliminating certain foods um, or focusing on, on certain uh, food types. If you're an elite athlete, that might be a bit different. Um, but beyond that, for, for your average Joe, uh, it's just about having things in proportion uh, and being better informed. Yeah, exactly. We are all unique and it's having everything in moderation. And thank you. I, I actually quite liked how you said, you know, I'm not a nutritionist because I'm most definitely not a psychiatrist. And I think a lot, a lot of people out there will perhaps um, see somebody quite influential in the media or in the spotlight um, pedal pushing a one size fits all approach. And again, even some public health messages of course they have a place of course they do but it doesn't mean it applies to everyone as a gospel you know as a set rule and you mentioned intuitive eating for so for some people you mentioned quite rightly some people do thrive off having more of a structured approach but other people do like to say goodbye to those rules and it can be quite a, a helpful approach I think for um for quite a few people when they're working on their relationship with, with food um Let's discuss, and it's again very difficult to navigate such a sensitive conversation that we have to keep yeah. saying, of course, everybody out there, we hope this is helpful and not going to alienate because we know you've all got something different going on right now. Everybody does. Let's bring up the topic of obesity a little bit because we know that at the moment in the pandemic, the government have brought this up quite a few times. And I'm sure that has also equated to um, some anxiety for a lot of people. How much of a correlation perhaps have you seen recently, Chi Chi, with emotional eating and obesity? Yeah, that's um big question. Topic. Sorry. Yes. It is. Um, no, I think it's it's absolutely fine to ask about that. I'm gonna answer that in what might seem like a roundabout way, but I just want to highlight one thing. Um, so I think in society, there's, there's a danger that we jump to conclusions and within this topic of obesity and the public health messaging, um, I think we're at risk of falling into the trap of one narrative, which is a valid narrative, but it doesn't cover everybody. And, um, it's basically the idea that, um, everything is down to the individual and it's just about them having better discipline. And if people could just be more disciplined, they would eat healthier and they wouldn't be obese. So um, speaking from a psychiatric perspective, there's been a reasonable amount of research looking at what we call adverse childhood experiences. Remember at the top, we talked about stress broadly defined and how we're talking about adversity that may have occurred at any point across our lifespan. So what I am talking about is quite significant forms of trauma that people may have experienced during their childhood. And that's been shown to have um, longer term effects. Um, so something may have happened in somebody's childhood, but as an adult, uh, they may, for example, present as overweight. And just filling in the gaps there, if we talk about someone who's been um, severely abused, for example, they may have a sense of shame about their body. And on an unconscious level, one of the ways to protect themselves from any further harm is to overeat, um, to make themselves 
they feel less attractive and to appear less attractive to other people. So this whole issue of fat shaming where somebody just makes a judgment based on someone's appearance may completely miss um, a whole range of difficulties that person has experienced earlier in their life. So I can just really emphasize the need for us to to show a degree of sensitivity, yeah. thought, and not to jump to conclusions. Yeah, being kind. I, I think in society, we, we're too quick to judge a book by its cover. Everybody has a story and, and a pathway, don't they, to get to where they are and the reason they are the way they are. And as you quite rightly said, fat shaming is just not okay. And it's not going to solve anything. That It's a very, well, I'm sure maybe some people may react to it, but the majority of people I work with most definitely do not react positively to that sort of behavior. I, I don't condone it at all. It's very sad, actually. I think we've even got to a space um, at the moment where this sort of thing happens. I think um, food advertising is all around us as well. And it's very difficult to avoid it. I mean, everywhere you turn, if you're walking down the street, there's a billboard with food or on the TV adverts, it's always food. Do, do you tend to find that that's also a bit of a hindrance for people in terms of working on their relationships with food? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to, to the point I was trying to make, which is that that might be applicable um, even let's call it the majority of people. Um, but for those that it doesn't fit, it can be really painful because it's reinforcing uh, the sort of negative self-talk they're already engaging in. Mm. Um, and those are the people that you're gonna miss out on in terms of actually effecting real change because um, it reinforces those negative thoughts and it makes it harder for them to um, if you like, grant themselves permission to seek help. Uh, so it's, it's a tough job that the government have mm. because um, I think there is more that, that people could do and there are situations where people do ne need to take responsibility for their choices. But then you open up this can of worms because there are really broad issues, even around uh, areas like poverty and the fact that people make food choices based on their financial means. Yeah. So it's it's all very well talking about, um, you know, we could tell everyone that they should be eating sweet potato and quinoa, but if they can't afford it, <laughs> exactly. it's not going to be something that they're going to be able to do. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it just needs to be approached with real sensitivity. I completely agree. It, it, I wish, and this is a bit of a dream kind of scenario, but I wish that everybody had access to a psychiatrist or psychologist like yourself, a nutrition professional and a doctor and a PT. And we had this lovely balanced individual approach to every single person's life. But as you said, there's so much dis disparity in the UK with um yeah, income, financial reasons, education, cultural, ethnicity. There's so many factors to take into account when we're thinking about a human being um, and how they see the world and, and as a result, how things happen and how we react to situations. I mean, in terms of thought-provoking activities that somebody could do, what are your thoughts on meditation? as being something that someone can try and do at home. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a great question. It goes back to the theme of what is the um, what is the issue that we're trying to deal with, and um, let's not just deal with the behaviour, uh, which in this case would be um, emotional eating. But if the problem is that somebody's stressed, then absolutely we should look very broadly at things that are going to help them to manage their anxiety. So I really like this concept because um, we are talking about a phenomenon that affects all people. I love this concept of the sort of continuum of anxiety. Anxiety is a normal phenomenon, but it will affect some people more than others. And in some cases, it will lead to a more pronounced manifestation. Um, but there are certain markers that you might look for, and, and a poor relationship with food is just one of a number of things. It might be that people are consuming too much media because they're worried about what's going on in the world they may be drinking too much alcohol they may be engaged in ruminative thinking mm. and so the approach that you're going to take there isn't just going to be about food it's going to be well how can we manage your stress better so absolutely things like uh, yoga and mindfulness meditation uh, are going to be part of a, a package of things that you'd want to be able to offer people and this isn't sort of fluffy pseudoscience because um, what yoga would do, um, for example, is that it actually corrects an imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And the sympathetic nervous system in particular is responsible for our fight, flight or freeze response. So that's when we um, acknowledge that there's a sense of danger um, and that's the system that promotes uh, the secretion of um, adrenaline in response to something that causes us fear. Um, so yoga activates the parasympathetic nervous system that helps us to rest and digest our food. Um, and so it actually has a, a scientific basis behind it. So although it may not seem like something that's gonna be directly related to emotional eating, I think these things all um, overlap and uh, these are relevant tools that might just give you um, some marginal gains and in aggregate, things start to shift in the right direction. I'm really glad you mentioned um, movement actually as well, because it, like you said, it, this isn't just pseudoscience or some hyped up hippie thing. It's genuinely the fact that it has been shown that if you move, you do feel better and surely feeling better will reduce the likelihood of any um, coping strategy that's needed maybe a little bit. So there's no harm in, in encouraging people to try and move a bit more. And again, on the flip side, I just want to cover myself what I've just said by I know that over-exercising is also um, a concern for a lot of people in the current situation we're in as well. And in general, it was before. And you have to find that balance of movement, don't you, Chi Chi, that definitely works for you? Absolutely. It, it feels like with every, every theme we're covering, there's a double-edged mm. sword. Yeah. Um, so yes, movement is, is something that's helpful and exercise. The way I would look at it is that it's one of the things that helps to give us a sense of routine. And it's our routine that has been disrupted um as much as anything and and that's going to mean different things to different people but we are mainly creatures of habit and we're having to make adaptations to our routine but i think for most people they do need to have some sense of routine in order to function 
towards the the optimal end. So exercise is is a good one uh, for relieving stress. Um, it can be linked to our eating as well because if we are thinking about trying to to manage our weight, um, just getting the timing of exercise um, can really help. It doesn't necessarily uh, need to lead to to overeating, and it's another good way of activating that reward system uh, and get the endorphins flowing. Yeah. Yep, exactly. It's almost like the routine, like you said. I mean, I've been noticing anecdotally for myself that it's much harder to be mo- to motivate yourself when you don't have the routine. And I'm sure that it also acts as a distraction from the new um, new living environment and world that we live in right now. Um, but Titi, that does move me on to a part of the podcast, which may be a little bit tricky for this topic, but we'll give it a go. And it's a fact or fiction round. So, are you ready for this? Um, what if my answer is no? <laughs> You've got no choice, I'm afraid, because you said yes to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> am, okay. I, am I going to be marked on this? Uh, um, no, I think not. I'll have to have final editing rights, but yes, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's go for it. It's impossible for us health professionals to so much nuance, but let's give it a go. Here we go. Um, stress is the biggest cause of emotional eating, fact or fiction? Is, is there a right answer? I, I, you've no. got me nervous now. <laughs> not at all, just your opinion. You can expand on any of the answers. Please don't worry. I'm going to be a really awkward uh, interviewee um, I would say that it's it's one of a number of factors but yes I would lean towards saying that it's it's the biggest factor when we look at it in a very broad sense yeah there we go emotional eaters are typically overweight hmm. that's a hard question how do I how do I answer that um, I would say that's fiction uh, we've talked about um, the fact that there's a range of disordered eating and I really want to get away from the focus on obesity and overeating. Yeah, so I would say false. Yeah, I like that. There is a difference between physical hunger and emotional hunger. That would be a fact. Um, so I've I've touched briefly and very crudely on some of the neuroscience there are hormones in our brain um, that tell us when we've reached the point of satiety uh, that's when we feel full up and there can be disruptions um, and also when we're when we're hungry so there can be disruptions in those those hormones that mean that people don't stop eating um through no fault of their own and then there's going to be a tendency for for people to to put on weight um so yeah well explained definitely um emotional eating only affects women (laughs) fiction (laughs) yay straightforward Um, one (laughs) but just to expand on that um the reason uh that statement probably comes about is that when we do look at uh, some of the established eating disorders, in particular anorexia nervosa, the rates are significantly higher uh, for women uh, more than men. We don't fully understand the reasons for that. Um, and we do feel that eating disorders in men probably uh, have a slightly different character um, there's a bit more around or there's a difference in the sort of body image concerns uh, that men do have. And it might also be the case that men are less likely to come forward because there's more stigma attached to eating disorders in men. But the reality is that they are more prevalent, as far as we know, in women. There we go. Um, getting enough nutrients to fuel your body helps to overcome emotional eating. I'm going to sit on the fence with this one. I, I told you I was going to be Yeah, difficult. no, go for it. We had someone say faction, so they mixed fact <laughs> and fiction together very, very cleverly. 
This is a, it's a great question. Um, ask me in 10 years time. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of interest uh, in the link between uh, nutrition and mental health. Mindfulness helps ease emotional eating. It can do, fact. Ooh, excellent. There we go, guys. Mindful eating, please, and mindful life. That's, that's the way we want to be. Um, emotional eating is unhealthy. Um, it's going to, it's going to mean different things to different people. Uh, exactly. we all engage in emotional eating, uh, to some degree. Uh, I doubt there's anyone listening that hasn't had a rubbish day and they've thought, you know what, everything has just gone wrong and let me just treat myself to, and then you can fill in the gap, an ice cream, a chocolate, um, <laughs> a pack of crisps. Yeah. So we all we all have emotions. Uh, we all require nutrition. There are going to be times when we emotionally eat. What we're really trying to emphasize here is having things in balance and not getting to a point where um, eating becomes a preoccupation or that we're using our food to really regulate our emotions that's when one is heading into the danger zone. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's a good last question there. Lack of willpower means you're likely to be an emotional eater. Again, to be difficult, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I think the, the challenge that we have is um, it's too easy to, to point the finger um, and it is always, this could be the same for anything to do with uh, difficulties with alcohol or drugs, but it's purely down to willpower. Yeah. Truth is, we don't know. And I, I gave the example of um, issues people can have um, with, with their hormones, which are not their fault at all. So that's far too simple uh, a response. And uh, there can be a number of complex issues that people are struggling with uh, that lead to um, challenging relationships with food. So we've got to be really careful not to judge people. Uh, even if we think we might be right, it doesn't really help uh, that person. And um, yeah, it's just not a very nice way to, to treat people. <laughs> I could not agree more. Well, Chi-Chi, that was a wonderful fact of fiction round. It was so informative. And that does nearly wrap up the episode, which is so sad because it's such a big topic. I think, I think it deserves a whole series in itself, to be honest. But we do finish every episode on the Food for Thought podcast uh, with a take-home message, a Food for Thought. And I would like to start by just saying, as we've discussed throughout this entire conversation, it's so difficult to put a one-size-fits-all approach on life. It's just impossible. Emotions come in all different forms and shapes and everybody comes in a different, um, different sphere of living and mindset and way of life. And we can't judge. We need to be kind. I think what's really come out from our conversation today is, is the need to not judge and be kind because it's not helping. It's not getting us anywhere. And as our fact and fiction round just proved, like you mentioned with willpower, it's not that simple. And people are very quick to point the finger. And instead of helping one another in society, that's something that I think we could all we could all do a bit more. But if you could leave, because you're our expert here today, if you could leave our listeners with um, something useful or a take home message today, Chi Chi, what would that be? Uh, you've totally stolen my thunder. Oh, no. Every, everything I was going to say, you pretty much said. <laughs> I, I would just want to encourage anyone who um, has had a difficult relationship with food. That doesn't have to define you. Um, I think it's really important to reach out to support. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be professional support. It might just be that you need to speak to a trusted friend um there are support networks so do use um online resources um if you're not able to or you don't feel you have the confidence to speak to your gp um or a psychologist or psychiatrist um but but don't be discouraged and just try and 
um, identify things that you can do. We always tend to focus on the things that are out of our control. And I think it just means that it feels like there's this insurmountable barrier. But take baby steps and think about the first things that you can do, that you can commit to, uh, and that just gets you on that path. And then with a bit of support, um, things can progress. Oh, that was lovely. Um, I hope it's inspired everybody listening and also to know they're not alone. Chi-Chi, thank you so much for, I know I've wanted to get you on the podcast actually for a very long time. And as we both have babies and busy jobs and lives, I'm so glad we made it happen. Is there any resource that you would direct people to if they wanted to get in touch with you and maybe come and see you? Is there a way of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my website, if I can just remember it, is drchiclinic.com. I'm also the clinical lead at a new uh, psychotherapy service, The Soak. So that's thesoak.uk and uh, more than happy to help. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on Food for Thought. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode in series nine of Food for Thought. Where has the time gone? I truly hope that you've learned how our bodies really are as unique as our personalities and that we've given you the confidence to enjoy life to the fullest by following evidence-based advice. I'd like to share a huge thank you to all of my listeners and the wonderful guests that we have on. I couldn't do this without you. And if you all have the time, please do leave us a review. That way we can reach those higher highs in the charts and hopefully reach and help more and more people. For more information about my nutrition clinic, the books, healthy recipes, and so much more, please visit nutrition.com and follow me at nutrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.